thank you to everyone for turning up today. And I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, um, past and present, before I commence. Okay, so we're doing a podcast. That's what this button is for. And I have a slideshow which I hope goes off without a hitch, unlike my last presentation. So today uh, the focus is fitness issues and fitness hearings in the District Court and Supreme Court. And some of us are from Indictable, so you will either have had one or will have one of these hearings soon. And we've got some other people that have extensive experience in criminal law as well. And of course, at committal, the issue of fitness can start arising. You know, you can realise that a person is unfit um, at the committal stage and start the process with having them assessed. Uh, so there is state legislation and Commonwealth legislation. My experience is overwhelmingly with the state legislation, but I, towards the end I'll point out like, there is a difference in the procedures with Commonwealth and there's a different piece of legislation as well. So I don't have practical experience of ever having somebody who's gone through a fitness hearing in, under Commonwealth. I do currently have a client who uh, has a mental health issue and we thought might be unfit, but he's become well enough under the medication. So I don't have practical experience of going through that. So I've borrowed heavily from uh, Juliana Croft's paper and I'll give you a little diagram cheat sheet that I've completely plagiarised from Juliana's paper with her permission. And Frith Way sort of pointed me in that direction when, when I got allocated a terrorism matter because it, the, the system's totally different the way the regime works. So my main focus today is on state, but they're the two pieces of legislation. And um, I always go back when I get a client that I think's unfit or we're going for a fitness hearing and then or the next stage, um, a special hearing, I always go back to that piece of legislation because that tells you the procedures. Um, it tells you the onus of proof, that it's going to be judge alone. Um, it tells you what happens next and what the orders that the judge can make. It's all in that legislation. So I always go back to that, the Mental Health Forensic Provisions Act, 1990. Um, so fitness, just to point out, fitness is about how you are, how the person is at the time of the court hearing. It's not about um, time at, not about mental state at the time of the offence. It's about how the person is when they get to court. And um, whereas the mental illness defence question focuses on the state of mind at the time of the alleged action and whether... Uh, the mental health is causally connected to the alleged action. Uh, some people may be unfit due to a mental illness or an intellectual impairment, a head injury or a combination of both. Not all people who have a mental illness are unfit and not all people who have a mental illness defence are unfit either. And not all people that have an intellectual impairment are unfit. Um, some people may start off as unfit and then become fit later on through medication. They might balance out on medication or when they're off drugs. So when you first get a client, they might be psychotic 
and that might be because they're not on their medication or they're high on drugs, combination of both, but once they're stabilised, that their mental health and their fitness, they might become coherent and they might improve. So you may not end up needing to go through the process of a fitness hearing. They might well improve. Some people may be permanently unfit. They may never improve and that might be the case with somebody who is unfit due to a cognitive intellectual impairment. Fitness can also fluctuate. Uh, so somebody might be fit and then the stress of the trial might push them over the edge. They might become unfit and they can become unfit at any time during the proceedings. But I think for the person that is borderline fit or unfit, the time, the stress leading up to their trial or during the trial can really be the tipping point. So I think that's a danger point that we have to watch out for. Um, and some people deteriorate over a long period. You know, they might be up and down on their mental health or not taking their medication or the medication has stopped having an effect and they, their fitness may fluctuate. And uh, we have a duty to the court to raise issues of unfitness. We may not, of course, we may not want our client to be unfit, but we do have a duty to the court to raise it. Um, so, is my client unfit? How do you, how do you know? What, what should you do and what are some signs? Some signs are not so obvious and it can, some people it can take a while to realise, oh, hang on, is this person fit or unfit? Um, and sometimes they might have some of these symptoms, but it may not be that they're unfit. It may, there may be another issue. So, but certainly, if your client can't speak coherently, whether it's in English or a foreign language through an interpreter, but they can't speak coherently, that could be a sign that there's something, there's something wrong. Um, you might get a client that has sacked a ton of lawyers because they don't trust all their previous lawyers, their lawyers are all part of some conspiracy. Well, that, you know, it's a bit of a red flag, like you might soon become part of the conspiracy. Or they might just be a very difficult client who doesn't like the legal advice of a lot of lawyers. So, but nevertheless, that's sort of, if, if everybody's part of the conspiracy against them, th that might be a delusional disorder. It may be the mental illness, but it could also be that they, they might never get over it and it might cause them trouble to be able to um, instruct you and to answer their, and to defend their matter or whatever. Some people might have, um, you know, that they might be, be psychotic, they might be looking like they're hearing voices or responding to internal stimuli, they might be laughing inappropriately. So that might be a mental illness, a psychosis, um, and that sort of behaviour, they might not be fit at that point in time. Uh, some people, you might need, you might, the client might keep asking you the same question. You, you thought you've explained it, you've tried numerous ways, and then the next day you get a phone call and they go, well, um, that, you know, can you explain to me section 32 again? It's like, mm, didn't, you know, didn't we go through that yesterday? But you, you go through it again, you be patient, but then it gets to the point where you think oh, this person is really not understanding, whereas you've got other clients that, you do need to explain it, but in the end they get it. So if somebody's having real trouble understanding 
concepts and about their what way they can plea and what options are available, it might be a sign that they're not actually fit. Uh, if you know that they've got dementia, because you they come to you and there's a diagnosis and there's medical records uh, or an intellectual impairment or a mental illness, there may be a chance that they might be unfit. Just just keep an eye out for it, that there might be. Your client may be undiagnosed though, so keep that in mind. Um, if they're unable to give you a coherent account or a version of events, it might be that they're unfit. Um, strange thoughts, all of those sorts of things. Like It may be one thing, it may be a combination of all. And, and if it's not improving over a couple of conferences, then you might need to um, get them assessed for fitness. So which, um, next slide please, which, um, which expert do you go for? Do you go for a psychiatrist or a psychologist? Well, if it's a mental illness, you should go for a psychiatrist. If it's intellectual impairment or like a head injury, something like, uh, saying, or they've told you that they've been in a car accident or something, it might be that you need a neuropsychological or a psychological assessment. So cognitive impairment, intellectual impairment, you need a psychological assessment. Uh, some people, unfortunately, have a combination of both, and it's um, intellectual impairment and schizophrenia can go hand in hand. I have had a couple of clients that have had both an intellectual impairment and schizophrenia, and they might have been unfit because of the intellectual impairment and, and, have, la and have a mental illness defence because of the mental illness, because of the schizophrenia. So two different issues fitness and mental illness defence, but they've got both problems, so I've had to get um, both reports. Um, and what I've usually done is I've assessed, I've got the psychological, the full cognitive assessment, what is their IQ, what is their functioning done first, and then if the, if the psychologist says that they're un, unfit and they shouldn't have been interviewed by police because they wouldn't have understood their cautions, and all of that sort of thing, then I give that psychological report to the psychiatrist. If, if there's also a question of, you know, mental illness, if, if they've, um, you know, you, they might have been, they might tell you that they've been hospitalised in a psych ward, that they've been on a CTO, those are flags that you need a psychiatrist. Get the, get the records, get the hospital records, get the community mental health team records and you give those documents to your expert. Um, yeah, GP, uh, some people, as I said, some people have not been diagnosed in the community. So sometimes you have a client, you have got no previous records. They've, they've never been hospitalised. They might present late. I've had clients that are 48 and have been diagnosed for the first time with schizophrenia in custody. It's a late presentation. So you don't have anything much to give to your expert and but there might be things in the brief in the police uh, witness statements people observing some odd behavior um, or the justice health notes as well of when they first come into custody and they're behaving in a psychotic way and it doesn't seem to resolve it's not simply a drug-induced issue it's the symptoms aren't going away so you need to look for the other evidence in the brief or get their authority to release um, documents to you if those documents exist. Um, next slide. 
So the test is this case, the Presser criteria. It's a 1958 Victorian case. And these, you'll see when you get a fitness assessment that the expert will go through these, these questions, these points. Um, and sometimes I think it's, it's a very simple test and a lot of people will pass this. Like, it's not always difficult to pass this test, I think. I think it's a, I think it's a fairly low bar, low threshold to pass. So I think some people slip through the cracks. Um, that, so to be able to understand what they're charged with, so they'll be asked, yeah, what, do you know what you're charged with? Oh yes, I'm charged with robbery. So they'll tick that box. But you only need to be unfit on one of these to be, to be unfit. You don't need to fail all of the questions. It only takes one question to fail, to, to be on balance unfit. So that's the other thing to remember. Able to plead to the charge. So do they know the difference between guilty, not guilty, not guilty mental illness? Can they explain that to the expert? able to exercise her or his right of challenge to jurors. Um, so sometimes you haven't got to that point either of explaining the process of selecting jurors and impanelling and their right to challenge, but usually the expert will, will say, well, you know, will explain it and can the person explain it back? Do they understand that? So, but that's another one of the criteria. Um, next slide, please. Uh, we've got understands generally the nature of the proceedings, that it's an inquiry as to whether she or he did what she or he is charged with, follows the course of the proceedings to be able to understand what is going on in a general sense. They don't need to understand everything about the law or procedures, but in a general sense. Understands the substantial effect of any evidence that may be given against her or him. Um, and I've had clients that haven't understood what evidence is. They, they, no matter, you, they don't understand that it's that, what that witness is saying in court or that it's that statement. Some people, you know, they don't understand what, what evidence is. Um, next slide. Uh, they need to be able to make their defence or answer to the charge and they need to be able to do that through their barrister or, or counsel. And uh, to, to, they'll need to be able to tell their version of events, tell their side of the story, um, and if necessary, to be able to give evidence in court if, if it's a case where they need to be giving evidence. So you get some people that no matter how hard you try to get their story, they, they just can't, they can't give a version. They, they, they might be totally historically inaccurate, they can't put things in sequential order, things like that. There might be signs that there's something, there's something wrong um, with their fitness. Must have sufficient capacity to be able to decide what defence she or he will rely upon and to make the defence and version of facts known to the court and counsel, if any. So similar, but it, whether they can actually um, whether they can, can do that in a sensical way. I mean, some defences don't make sense. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're not fit. Some people just have really bad instructions and so it doesn't mean that they're unfit just because they've got no defence or no instructions. Um, so 
you, you get stuck with that, that problem. Um, does anyone have any sort of experience that they want to share or with a client on, on look, that's sort of been found unfit on one of these issues or a borderline or a tricky issue? Does anyone have anyone that you want to share? I mean, I had one guy that was, um, every, he was fixed on this delusion that he, that there was a conspiracy. Police and this one woman in the, in the police brief were in a conspiracy against him and that they'd put the pseudoephedrine in the storage sheds. And, and so you're trying to get, but, but your fingerprints there, you know, what, what are you going to say? But, you know, you go through the, try and go through the evidence, you know, your fingerprints there. But he just got to keep going back to this conspiracy. And my first thought was, you know, he's done it and he just can't, he's just got no defence. Like, he is guilty and he really should be pleading guilty. That's what I'm sort of thinking. But then it gets got to the point where he wasn't budging on pleading guilty. He, he just was fixed on this conspiracy delusion. And, um, and so I thought, well, I just don't know if he can actually, um, you know, if he can actually instruct properly, I'm not sure. So it got him tested and I, I really wasn't sure whether it actually come back if he, as him being unfit, but it did because he had a non-bizarre delusion. So there could, non-bizarre in the sense, there could be police corruption, that's a possibility, just like the people that have a delusion that somebody's having an affair, like their partner's having an affair. It could be true, it could be true, but um, so it's non-bizarre. It's not, it's not like um, you're seeing demons and things like that. So it's a realistic, possible type delusion, but they're fixed on it and it just totally blocks them from being able to look at all the other evidence which points towards a defence or, or, you know, no defence and it stops them being able to to instruct and to give a proper version, uh, a version. So that's that's one that was sort of, I wasn't sure if it would come back unfit or fit, but both psychiatrists agreed he was unfit. Um, so, and then there's another case which is also important, um, is the High Court case. Um, next slide. Oh, yep. Um, Kesavaraja, and I'm never sure if that's the correct pronunciation, but you have to take into account the length of the trial and what their condition will likely um, be during the course of the trial. So a very long trial may really, um, somebody might not make it through the whole trial. They're, they might deteriorate to such an extent. So, uh, and no amount of breaks might help that. Like you might have somebody that, they might be okay with a shorter trial three days or one week, but if it's going to be a six-week trial, no matter how many breaks you give them during the trial, they may not be able to sit through that. So that's also a consideration which needs to be um, taken into account. And there's a case called Eastman which um, sort of says that delusion itself does not render a person unfit, um, even if it relates to, a de the delusion relates to the subject matter of a trial. Um, even if a person has a, conducts their defence in a matter that's contrary to their interests, apparently that doesn't, that doesn't make them unfit either. And if they're behaving 
in a disruptive fashion, like behaving really badly in court, that also um, doesn't render the person unfit to stand trial, <laughs> even though it's to such a disadvantage if they behave that way. Um, but that's apparent, that's under Eastman, that's not a reason to find a person unfit just because they're behaving terribly. And, um, and just because a person's mental disorder prevents them from having a trusting relationship with their counsel does not mean the person is unfit to stand trial. So that's Eastman, something to just keep in mind. Um, so then we go to the legislation, that act, um, who can raise unfitness? Anybody can, the court can, the defence can, the DPP can, and that's section five of the legislation, um, the Mental Health Forensic Provisions Act, section five, anyone can raise unfitness, it, and it's a duty to the court to do so. Uh, so when you've got somebody that's unfit and you've got your report that says that they're unfit, serve the report. Serve the report on the prosecution. And the next step is the DPP will have to send a different expert to go and see the person and they will need the same material that you had. So if you've got your justice health notes and school records and um, bits and pieces, hospital records, their expert is going to need the same information that you gave your expert. And if you don't hand it over, they, they will, they'll be able to subpoena it. The, the doctors need to see the same material. So I usually explain that to the client. Um, you know, the, the other doctor also needs to see your hospital records or whatever. And as I say, if you, if you don't serve it, it, because your report refers to the justice health notes and the everything else, the DPP already has the brief, so you don't need to re give them what they've already got. But if you're relying on documents that they do not have, then you really need to serve it so that their expert also has access to the same information and see if they analyse it and interpret it the same way. And then, so then you wait for, um, wait for the other report and see whether the, the doctors are in agreement or not. And the legal test is balance of probabilities. So it's not beyond a reasonable doubt, it's on the balance of probabilities, which is section six of the legislation. And section seven of the legislation um, is about the time that the question of unfitness may be raised. So you go to section seven and Fitness can be raised at any time during the proceedings and it can be raised more than once. So somebody might be really on the borderline and they might be found fit, they might deteriorate and you might need to have another fitness hearing, unfortunately, but that it can be raised more than once for a person. And so it is important to remember fitness can fluctuate, um, often it does fluctuate and um, stress can really tip some people over the edge. Uh, medication, changes in medication, not taking medication, um, that can also affect a person's fitness. And then 
the legislation goes on to procedures, so looking at sections um, 8, 9 and 10, uh, the procedure, section 8 covers the procedure where the question of unfitness is raised before arraignment. So you're in the local court um, and then you might go up to the district court and you haven't yet been arraigned. Uh, so, that, uh, th so the court is meant to determine the issue um, of fitness before, before any trial takes place. Uh, and they also might decide, well, now there's no longer a need for a fitness hearing. And the situation with that is like a person might be unfit when they've left the local court and they're committed for trial because that's the, they can't be taken to have pled guilty. The default is that they're committed for trial. There might be such a weight between leaving the local court and you've got two psychiatric reports saying unfit, but then they start improving on the medication. They they become more coherent, they, you know, and you think, oh, hang on, I think they're fit now. So you might need an update, a supplementary re report, just to check, um, especially if your fitness hearing is not for you know, another five months and you really think there's a marked improvement in their functioning, then an updated report is a good idea and you might get to the point where the psych now says, Actually, no, he's improved. And you serve that and, and then, look, the doctors might agree, look, they've now, this person has now improved, so you can tell the court we don't need the fitness hearing, they're, they're fit. And you can proceed, if they wanted to go to trial, you can take a trial date, or if they want to plead guilty, then they can enter a plea of guilty and uh, they will, because that's their first available opportunity to have pled guilty, they're not penalised because they were committed for trial. So as long as they've pled guilty it's what at what is considered their first opportunity and for a, for a fit person for an unfit person their first opportunity is when they have become fit so they they're not they're not penalized uh, for not having pled in the local court um, so then we go to um, section 9 what happens if the procedures raised after arraignment the if you're in the middle of a trial and somebody has become un you think they're unfit then the trial has to be postponed it it sort of stops the jury does not hear the fitness hearing so you kind of have a fitness hearing without the jury uh, in the middle of a trial and I've had that situation as well um, so that's that's the procedure so again it is judge alone and um, just like just like if it happens before arraignment, the fitness hearing is judge alone. And if the person is found unfit, then the jury is discharged, so that the trial cannot continue. If they're found fit, then the trial can continue. Um, hopefully it wouldn't take too long and the, the trial wouldn't have been too disrupted. Oh, no, any time. Yeah, any time. Just for the others listening, you might need to just repeat. Or you might need to repeat. Yeah. Um, it's more sort of an interest around, like, what kind of percentage of trials or matters do you think fitness would be raised? I think... Oh, I don't know percentages, but I think it's very... I think there's a lot of fitness hearings um, in the Supreme Court with murder matters. I think a lot... But district court... There's still quite a lot, but I, honestly, I don't know percentages. Um, but it's more common than we 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. And same with like, yeah, the, there's a lot of um, mental illness defence issues in the Supreme Court as well, um, as, as well. So yeah, fitness and mental illness defence matters, but yeah, definitely a lot in the district court too. I think the danger with the the delay of getting a hearing date for the fitness hearing, that that's a problem because they're meant to be as soon as practicable after the the issues raised, and I don't know that it's, it happens quite quick enough. And that definitely you might need, unfortunately, it costs legal aid more money, but you might need a supplementary report if if you think your client has perhaps become fit now, leading up to the fitness hearing. But if they're still floridly unfit, then I, I think you could do without the supplementary report, just your call. But um, And it, so section 10, it has to be in good faith. Um, so if, if the judge thinks that somebody is bunging it on and bunging on the symptoms and trying to get out of their trial, if there's no um, psychiatric opinion supporting that they are unfit, that sort of thing, or yeah, if, if the judge doesn't think that it's genuine, then there won't, you know, there won't be, there won't be a finding of unfitness, but there shouldn't really be a fitness hearing. So it has to be in good faith. And um, okay, so section eleven is judge that it is judge alone. So that's that's um, that's your judge, and it's um, section eleven is where you get that from. Section 12 is uh, the conduct of the matter should be done in a non-adversarial way. It doesn't always feel that way when you put in the witness box and you're cross-examined about your affidavit saying, I think my client is unfit because of X, Y and Z. It kind of still feels like, you know, you're in a war zone. Um, having had that personal experience this year of being cross-examined for the first time. So, but it is meant to be non-adversarial and like the prosecution can raise that this person's unfit as well. They, they can raise the issue. So, um, On that point about doing an affidavit, do you, is that generally routine throughout advising? No, no. Yeah, th this one, um, there was a disagreement and, and I actually, I really thought that she was unfit, um, but his honour disagreed with, found, despite, yeah, she was yelling out while I was giving, while I was being cross-examined, yelling out in the courtroom, but his honour said, well, she's responding, she's following the evidence, she's responding to what you're saying and um, people can behave, you know, badly. And that goes back to that Eastman case of, but you know they can still get a fair trial and thinking oh my goodness there's no way if she behaves that way that she's going to get a fair trial so I kind of have an issue with some of those there's just no way if she behaves that way you would need a judge alone trial if she's going to carry on that way uh, so but yeah um, so um, onus of proof is section 12 subsection 3 and the onus of the proof does not rest on any party, so, and, and it's on the balance and it's on the balance of probabilities. So it, it's not for the defence to prove it that the person's unfit. It does not rest on any party. Yeah. 
Then um, under section 13, uh, if a person's found fit to be tried, then the proceedings, the, the charges, they, they can proceed as normal. So if they're found fit, then are they going to go to trial? Are they going to plead guilty? Um, so that they can proceed as normal. Um, proceed to trial or proceed to sentence. Um, a person that's, that if you think your client's unfit in the local court and you commit them, they're committed for trial, like so you commit them for trial, they're, they're, the default position is they're presumed to have pled not guilty. Um, and the, the, when the new legislation comes in, that the early appropriate pleas of guilty legislation will sort of, it will legislate that a person that becomes fit later will still be eligible for their, their discount. So they're not going to be disadvantaged if they become fit and decide to plead guilty. Um, when a person's found unfit to be tried, you look at section 14 of the legislation. And so the criminal proceedings are not uh, continued. The trial can't go ahead, uh, even if the trial's already started. And the court must refer the person to the Mental Health Review Tribunal. Again, this is state, the state regimes, Commonwealth is different. And uh, the court can adjourn, the court can grant you bail at that stage. Uh, if, you're not, if you're in custody, the court can, you can make a bail application for the person at that stage. The court can remand the person in custody pending the Mental Health Review Tribunal determination. They, they can make other orders as well. Then you're reviewed. So you're reviewed by the Mental Health Review Tribunal and you know, if they're on bail, if a person's on bail, they'll get a letter from the tribunal saying you've got to turn up to hearing on such and such date at, at the tribunal. And we have the Mental Health Advocacy Service based at Burwood who will represent, the, usually if they're not privately represented, represent the person at the hearing. And what I usually do is once I've got, my, my, once my client's been found unfit, I usually um, send a memo with the, with the reports to the Mental Health Advocacy Service to just to let them know this person's just been found unfit so this, you know, this person should be, you'll be coming across this person. Um, and I also email the Mental Health Review Tribunal, um, there's an email address and just let them know that I've got the criminal matter and um, that this person's just been found unfit and I'd like to be kept up to date on when is their tribunal hearing, not that I'll be appearing at it, but what is the hearing and what is the determination? In six months' time, does the tribunal say that they're unfit and unlikely to become fit in 12 months or not? Because the reason I do that is because under the legislation, the Mental Health Review Tribunal um, do not need to notify the defence. It's not in the legislation to tell the defence anything, which is really frustrating. Your matter can come back to the arraignment list without you actually knowing about it if you don't keep track of the matter. Uh, so the DPP, uh, the court gets told. Um, so if, if under section 16.4, if the Mental Health Review Tribunal determines a person will not become fit within during 12 months after the finding of unfitness, the tribunal must notify the DPP. But there's no obligation under that section to notify the defence, which 
I think it's crazy. We are the we are the person representing them. But um, so I just ask the tribunal to be kept in the loop, and they usually they're usually very good about it. And to be honest, they're actually better than the mental health advocacy service. I have to say, I get more communication from direct from the tribunal than the advocacy service. Like what happened at the tribunal, the, the tribunal have been good with sending me the copy of the determination. So, um, and um, yeah, so. Under section 17, um, the orders that the court may make following the determination of the tribunal that the person will be fit within 12 months is um, they can detain or they can grant bail. And um, basically the person is reviewed within, within six months, but it's usually closer that they'll be reviewed once referred, reviewed within six months by the tribunal. I had one client that had three tribunal reviews because they wanted to trial him on a new medication. So he actually, that took longer. They, he wasn't responding to one medication and they tried him on something else. And then finally, after three hearings, they said, no, he's still not fit. Um, so then we ended up coming back to court for a special hearing. And yep, so if, um, if your client is found to be unfit and unlikely to become fit, then the tribunal tells the DPP and then the DPP makes a direction. Are they going to proceed with those criminal charges or not? Inevitably, usually it's yes. So then you come back to the arraignment list, whether it's district court or Supreme Court, and you get a date for special hearing. So, um, and that's where um, you know, there's various verdicts available and all of that again is, is in this legislation what verdicts are available at special hearing. Um, I can go into that later but I just want to point out that Commonwealth is quite different and um, fitness can be raised by anybody, uh, common, uh, the person, the DPP or the Defence Legal Representative then the court must refer the proceedings to the court which the proceedings would have been referred to had the person been committed for trial. So if you raise it in the local court, then they're, they're committed up to the Supreme or the District Court. And if the higher court finds the person fit, then the higher court must remit the person back to the local court so that they can go through whatever committal proceedings they want to do, if any. Uh, but it's not the tribunal that finds the person fit. They're not referred to the Mental Health Review Tribunal. It's the court that decides. And uh, if the higher court finds that the person is unfit, then they must determine whether there's a prima facie case um, that the person committed the offence. So it's quite, it's quite different. So I'm... I haven't gone through the practical experience of that yet. I haven't. Has anyone had a Commonwealth unfit person? So I haven't. Um, but I've um, plagiarised. Well, I've copied Juliana's table from her paper, which is a flowchart, which is um, extremely helpful. So I can I can give that. It's just it's a flowchart. Flowchart. But the main thing is it's the it's not the tribunal that they don't get referred to the tribunal. It's the court that makes these decisions, I guess, you know, based on psychiatric reports and everything. 
um, it is quite different. So, you know, after, um, so after the fitness hearing's done, I'll, I'll touch on even though this, you go on to special hearings uh, if, if the person's unfit. And, and that's sort of governed by, uh, under section 19 of the Mental Health Forensic Provisions Act, the court has to seek the advice of the DPP as to whether any further proceedings will be taken. And then the court is meant to conduct a special hearing as soon as practicable, unless the DPP says no further proceedings. It's meant to be as close as a trial to po as possible, except there is uh, under section 21A, it's by judge alone. So there's the default position is judge alone for a special hearing, unless you elect to make to have a jury. And I'm not quite sure how you get an unfit person to elect to have a jury. So default position for special hearings is, is judge alone. And um, so the normal procedures, some judges, they'll want all those witnesses to be called, you know, the Crown case, all that evidence to be called. Doctors, if, if there's mental health defences, the doctors get called to give that evidence. Other judges do it in a more paper-based way, hand up a bunch of documents by agreement, read it all and then do the determination. But it is meant to be as close to a trial as possible, except you've got an unfit person who may not be able to give their version of events well or at all. So, um, and again, they're taken to have pled not guilty and, uh, and they're entitled to give evidence um, the verdicts that are available at special hearing, and this is governed by section 21B, section 22, you can have a not guilty, you're acquitted, person walks. You can have a not guilty on the grounds of mental illness, and in that's the case you get referred back to the tribunal as a forensic patient. You can have on the limited evidence available, the accused committed the offence charged or on the limited evidence available, the accused committed an offence available as an alternative to the offence charged. So it's not exactly a verdict of guilty, it's, it's a qualified finding of guilt, it's a, it's a, special, it's a special verdict. And um, under the legislation, it doesn't constitute a basis for conviction. but they do still have appeal rights. So you can still appeal to the CCA if you get a verdict that you don't like. If you're found on the limited evidence to have committed the offence, the person still has a right to appeal uh, against that. And then um, they get limiting terms. If, if they're found to have committed the offence, they're given limited terms, which the real horrible thing is it's a head sentence with no non-parole period. Uh, so the judge has to indicate whether if the person was fit, um, what, whether the judge would have imposed a sentence of imprisonment and if yes, the judge must nominate the estimated sentence the court would have imposed on a fit person who's found guilty after a trial. And if they wouldn't have imposed a term of imprisonment, then the judge can give them a bond or whatever other penalty they're going to do. Um, and any, as I said, any penalty can be appealed as same for a fit person. And, um, and time in custody should 
is also taken into account. So the limiting term would be backdated to the date of arrest if that's how long they've been in custody for that matter. The, the court can nominate the commencement date of the limiting term. And then the court must um, refer the person to the tribunal and if they're going to be detained, make the detention order. Um, I had a client that didn't, that was already on bail and he stayed out. Um, he got found not guilty on the grounds of mental illness and he has remained out. So he will go to the tribunal as a person um, in the community and he has to go and get um, seen by his community mental health team who prepare the report for the tribunal. Um, other people, if they're in custody, justice health doctors will go and see the person and prepare the report for the tribunal. And you can ask the tribunal for a copy of those, um, the psychiatric reports that were tendered at your client's um, tribunal hearing as well. Um, and there is a decision, the case of Koori, where um, where a person was found, um, it was a special hearing, but they didn't have they didn't have a defence of um, not guilty mental illness, so it wasn't that sort of it wasn't that. But they the judge there was a question whether there was discretion to make no order at all, um, and de to determine where the place of detention was. And the decision is that the court that. Um, it's not a question of whether they should be detained at all, it's they should be. Like, so Curie, if, if you've got a client that goes to special hearing and uh, is found on the limited evidence to have done the thing, the court, after the tribunal sees them, there has to be another order at court. It has to be another order under section 27. So we don't always see that a lot, because a lot of our clients that are unfit go to special hearing and they have a mental illness defence. A lot, a lot will have that. So this may not come up very often. Um, it, it's, it's only come up once for me where we had to go back to court after the finding, the limited evidence that this person has done the thing, go back to court to get the Section 27 order after he'd come back from the tribunal. Um, so that's just something else. Um, that's, about, that's about it. Um, oh, except Section 29. <laughs> Section 29, um, if the tribunal notifies the court that the person has become fit, then, um, then the court has to obtain advice from the DPP if further proceedings. And I have had this case once where a client with that delusion was unfit, so we went through the fitness hearing, and then, uh, so he was found unfit, goes to the tribunal, and they said he's unlikely to become fit in 12 months. So then we went to special hearing. And then, then, he, then he got some counts he got not guilty on and, and others he got found on the limited evidence to have committed them. And then, so he got limiting terms. And then he goes back to the tribunal as a forensic patient. And then the tribunal said, well, actually now he's become fit. So we then had to go back to court for another fitness hearing, um, get updated reports, and and then so at the fitness hearing he's now he's now fit, and then he said like he wanted to plead guilty to those remaining six counts. So then we pled guilty, and this is now he's been my client for now three years. That's how long it took, 
and um, we managed to get the same judge that had heard the special hearing and it was lucky it was Judge Hazler so we kind of convinced the listing judge to put us in front of the judge that's just heard all the facts that would make sense and um, so we knew what the limiting terms were what 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 the sentence would have been for a fit person well now that he is fit we thought you know that would cap whatever that limiting term was should cap it but now because he's fit he gets his discount and he gets a non-parole period and at the end of all that he had about two more weeks left to serve on his non-parole period so then it had to kind of get rushed through with the parole board like to, to, that he could actually get parole at that time that was a bit of a struggle but Judge Hazel sort of quickly did his remarks on sentence to, to get it so that the client wasn't kept in custody longer than the expiry of the parole, the non-parole period. So I've only had it once where unfit, special hearing, fit sentence. I've only had it once where they've become fit after the special hearing, but it, it can it can definitely happen. Thank you. Thanks, Helen.